All right. Um, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles back to Ephesians 1. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to mention, um, I don't know the backstory on that song, and I don't know if Seth did that on purpose, but apparently um, the subtitle to Come Praise and Glorify, number seven that we sung, the uh, subtitle of that should be Ephesians 1, set to music. Uh, that was that was fantastic. <laughs> um, anyway, that's just a side note. I was just noticing that while we were singing to it. <clears throat> Uh, in Ephesians 1, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 23. And to remind you of the context, last week we considered that believers have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ, that this is a work of the triune God, and that its ultimate purpose is the exaltation of Jesus Christ over all things to the glory of the triune name of God. So, with all of that as our backdrop, and with all of that in mind, let's pick up in verse 15 uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven above, we again want to thank you for your word. And now, Lord, help us to turn our exclusive attention to it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you are saying to your church in this passage. I pray that you would get me out of the way in all of my weakness. You would get us out of the way in all of our weakness. And that you would overcome that weakness. And that you would glorify yourself and your people through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the text starts, for this reason, uh, which that is referring back to the blessings of God in Christ to the saints that were described in verses 13 through 14. Because I have heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul is about to talk about his thankfulness to God for the Ephesian saints. But he gives the reason first. As we discussed last week, Paul had played a vital role in the planting and nurturing of the Ephesian church. Uh, once the church was firmly established, Paul was called to leave them for other endeavors. However, it was not as if he was done with them when he left. Uh, he continued to receive reports about them until the time of his death. 
In fact, this epistle is not the only one in Scripture that was sent to the Ephesian church. Interesting fact. Some of the last canonical epistles of Paul were written to a young elder in Ephesus named Timothy. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders upon his departure that false teachers would arise even from among themselves. Read those two epistles and I believe it becomes clear. He was right. Um, but, as we also see in the book of Revelation, the Ephesians seem to have properly dealt with these false teachers as they were commended by Christ himself for their fidelity to the truth. So, Paul is involved with the Ephesian church till he dies. That's mainly what I want you to see there. Here Paul says to the Ephesian church that the report of their faith in the Lord Jesus had come back to him. Evidently, this faith um, that was possessed by the Ephesian church was a living and a vibrant faith because we see one of its necessary fruits and evidences mentioned next, namely, love toward all the saints. The Apostle John, who interestingly enough is also associated with the Ephesian church, writes this, By this we know, love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And our Lord himself says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So this sounds like a wonderful ideal, right? We're going to love each other, and not just love each other, love each other the way Christ loves us. That's, that's as lovey as you get, right? And it's a wonderful thing to think of, and we all want to think of ourselves as doing this, but I, 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 imagine, I imagine that despite the fact that maybe we wouldn't argue against this in principle, as the old saying goes, the devil's in the details. Um, loving all, keyword all, loving all the saints means loving more than just the ones you like. Um, it also means loving that know-it-all brother or sister that just gets on your nerves every time you see him or her. Uh, it means loving that new, perhaps immature believer who is just not quite as advanced in the faith as you are. Um, it means Loving that brother or sister with whom we have disagreements, be they merely practical disagreements or perhaps even doctrinal disagreements on secondary or even tertiary issues. Do you love that Arminian brother who stubbornly refuses to see the absolute sovereignty of God we discussed last week? What about that dispensational sister who is convinced Jesus is coming back in the next five minutes and so there's no need for the church to make plans that span for multiple generations. What does that even mean to love these kind of people anyway? I think scripture makes it plain that material provision is at least part of it. Those who have been blessed with material wealth are called to help the brethren who are legitimately in need. Not freeloaders. Those who are legitimately in need. As James, the brother of our Lord, puts it, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So there is a material aspect in which we love the brethren. We need to make sure our base physical needs are met insofar that we're able, okay? Doesn't mean impoverish your own family to take it. That's not what it means. It means as you are able, take care of your brothers and your sisters. But that's not all. Okay, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. And in fact, I don't even know that we would say that it's the primary way. Um, material provision shows people we care about them, which engenders trust to be able to talk to them. You're more likely to listen to what somebody's got to say if you genuinely believe that they genuinely care about you. I mean, that's just normal. That's how we all operate. Um, I mean, this is generally true of believers and unbelievers alike. This is not unique to us as regenerate believers. Everybody's like this. So material provision puts us in a better position to talk to brothers and sisters about areas of disagreement because we can do so in a charitable environment. What I'm getting at is that another part of love for the brethren is that we seek to bring each other into the truth. Specifically, truth as revealed in Scripture. One of the most loving things we can do for another human being is tell them the truth, even when it's unpleasant. It's not to be a jerk about it. We want to be uh, sensitive to people's feelings. I'm not saying just go around being a jerk for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying... We should tell people the truth. Of course, the intention always should be the betterment of our brother to the glory of God and not simply that we win a debate. Because if you win the debate and you lose your brother, you lost. Okay, You, you won nothing. You lost. <clears throat> we want to bring that Arminian brother to understand that Scripture teaches the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation and in fact in all things because it brings peace to the believer and glory to God. We want to show that dispensational sister that God has one elect people from all eternity and that Christ has called us to work in the fields which are ripe for harvest until his coming without telling us exactly when that coming will be. Did you notice that he was very clear in his instructions of the Great Commission, go disciple the nations, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. But he didn't bother to tell us when that is. Well, I mean, God knows all things. Christ knows all things. Don't you think that that was uh, a wise choice on his part? How much different would we act if he would have told us the information that he withheld? It seems almost every generation since the ascension of Christ has believed it would be the final one. But as I heard one Christian commentator ask, what if we're still in the early part of church history? Has that thought ever occurred to you? How would it change the way we do church if we thought in that way? What if we put more effort into fulfilling the Great Commission given by our Lord than figuring out our eschatology charts to pinpoint the exact moment that Christ will return? What good news would it be for us to figure out that, hey, we, we figured out when Christ is going to return, and then he returns, and he finds us not doing what he told us to do. And what good was that? We figured it out, and now the master is not happy. 
Because he didn't tell us to figure that out. He told us to go disciple the nations. <clears throat> the point I'm trying to make, and that I think is implicit in Paul's inspired words, is that true saving faith in Christ causes us to love Christ and all those who are in Christ. You don't love Christ without loving his bride. This sort of love is one that seeks uh, to see provision made for the brethren physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. We seek to encourage the brethren Godward. Since this was true of the Ephesian church, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. That just seems like the logical response, doesn't it? I told you last week of my love and my thankfulness for this church. Part of the reason for that is that this church has provided me with a community of like-minded brothers and sisters, and I belong. I'm sure you all feel the same way. I'm not alone in that. And moving that out from the local to the universal church, it reassures us that there are like-minded believers who work for the discipling of the nations throughout the nations. It's one of the reasons we do a prayer for the persecuted church. We care about, we love our brothers. Even the ones we haven't met, we still love them because they are in Christ. And the fact that they exist, and the fact that they would endure suffering for Christ's sake, it shows us that God is accomplishing His purpose that we talked about last week. Namely, that He is uniting all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And this encourages us. Why would we not be thankful for that? And since it is the desire of Christ's people to see Christ exalted in this way, and since we are thankful insofar that we see it manifested in faithful local churches now, we should follow Paul's example of remembering faithful churches in our prayers. On this point, notice first that Paul does not even find it necessary to say he regularly prays. It's just assumed that he regularly prays. Just throws that phrase out there, my prayers. This should be true of us too. We should regularly pray. We are God's people. We should pray to him regularly. One with God's people, especially those who believe in his absolute sovereignty over all things, not regularly seek him in prayer, and especially regarding things pertaining to the church. We were just talking about a living faith causing us to love the brethren. Here's another primary way we do that. We go before God and lift up the needs of our brothers to him in prayer. We seek God's aid and provision for them. But Paul's prayer here is not simply a general prayer that the general needs of the Ephesian church would be met. I'm sure he probably did pray that prayer, but he specifically prays here that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, and in the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now that's a mouthful, and 
We will get to the content of this prayer in a moment. But consider first that Paul is offering the prayer to God, the Father of glory. Consider that title for a moment. God, the Father of glory. The Reformed Baptist pastor and Bible commentator John Gill states that, quote, God the Father may be so called may be so called because he is the author and giver of eternal glory and happiness, because all glory is due unto him. Again, this harkens us back to what was previously discussed in verses 3 through 14, that the Father has purposed and is working all things together in such a way that they, uh, that they would be united in Christ, including that he saves his elect people from among fallen men and for the sake of his beloved Son, and that he gives us, his people, every blessing in the heavenly places. This causes us to praise his glorious grace. Next, consider what these words say of our Lord Jesus. That's about the Father. What about the Son? Again, we are in Advent season where we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Here Paul speaks of Christ as man and that as such he was entirely devoted to God. The fact that Jesus became a man is what makes it possible that he should be the mediator between God and man. He is our new covenant head and as such he offered perfect worship, obedience, and devotion to God. Jesus worshiped the Father. He is the perfect moral and religious example by which we should seek to live our lives. Jesus regularly prayed and in fact even got alone so nobody would interrupt him. He would go off somewhere where maybe nobody even knew where he was at. I mean, we've seen that a few times in there, don't we? Where were you at? We were looking for you. I was praying. Uh, we see him regularly teaching in the temple. We see him regularly upsetting people who tried to add to the words of Scripture or change the meaning by their additions of the words of Scripture. We see that he had a zeal for the Father's house. We see that he cleared the temple out twice with a whip. What would Jesus do? He would clear the temple out with a whip. Okay, like He, he was completely devoted to God as man. Also notice the titles ascribed to Jesus by Paul in this context. He calls him Lord and Christ. Jesus as the Theanthropos, that is the God-man, is Lord over all, but especially as pertains to the church. And he is the long-prophesied Messiah, the son of Abraham and son of David. Or rather, I should say, the promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David who saves his people from their sins. Recall his name, Jesus, literally means Yahweh saves. Now, moving into the content of Paul's prayer, he prays for the Ephesian church that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So there was already a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of God among the Ephesian church before he prayed this prayer. Remember, he's saying, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, like that's what's causing the prayer. So there's already 
some spirit of wisdom and of revelation there. And again, we read of the great blessings with which God had already blessed the Ephesians and really all believers in verses 3 through 14 last week. Here Paul is asking that the Ephesians would remain, uh, excuse me, would not remain stagnant in the degree of wisdom and knowledge of God to which they had already attained, but rather that they would continue to grow in that wisdom and knowledge. In fact, I believe we could rightly say that that was at least one of Paul's reasons for even writing this epistle. If they already have attained a certain level, so he writes them an epistle to bring them to a higher level. And not only that, he prays that they would receive what's in the epistle. He prays that they would grow to new heights in Christ. Um, I just would ask the question, were you not encouraged by those things we considered last week? No, I am. I believe that's one of the most glorious passages in all of sacred scripture. And I talk about it frequently. Those who come on Wednesday night, you know I talk about it frequently because it's one of the best teaching passages in the scriptures. You want to talk about salvation by faith alone, you can go there. You want to talk about the Trinity, you can go there. If you want to talk about the glorious inheritance that we're going to receive, you can go there. You want to talk about the adoption of sons and daughters of God, you can go there. And on and on and on. That one passage. <clears throat> we could probably spend a lifetime simply contemplating those things. But Paul's prayer is that the believers in Ephesus would attain even higher wisdom and knowledge. This is wisdom and knowledge that comes only by the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In the end of this wisdom and knowledge, the whole reason for trying to attain these things is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So the end of the saints attaining spiritual wisdom and knowledge is threefold. First, that we may know the hope into which he has called us. That is, Paul earnestly desired for the Ephesian believers to know the hope, which is to say, the object in which we place our hope, and to which we have been called by the Father. Of course, our hope is in Christ alone. He is our hope. Our hope is in the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And again, as Paul writes elsewhere, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What greater hope could we have than this? We've been made God's adopted sons and daughters in Christ. We are being made into the image of Christ. We have been freed from the fear of anything in creation ever separating us from his love again. We have been called to freedom in Christ, brothers and sisters. We are free. We are free from the bondage of the law. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the wrath incurred by our sin. We are free to live for Christ. And that, that's our hope. Now second, that we may know the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ. Now, there are two ways this portion of the text has been traditionally interpreted. One views it as the richness of his glory being in God's inheritance, which would be the saints. The inheritance reference there would, in that way of interpreting would be it's God's inheritance. He's the one receiving the inheritance. This interpretation is not without merit. The Old Testament describes the saints as God's chosen people who are his treasured possession and his heritage. I do think there's some Old Testament um, context which would lend itself to that interpretation. I think it's legitimate. But I think the context in our current passage lends itself to another meaning, which is that we should know the riches of the glorious inheritance he gives to the saints. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would grow in their wisdom and knowledge toward God so that they would receive this list of blessings. In other words, he is praying that the saints at Ephesus would grow in the knowledge of the inheritance we have from God in Christ. Again, that was mentioned in verses 3 through 14. Commenting on this portion of the passage, John Stott writes, quote, The Greek expression, like the English, could mean either God's inheritance or ours, that is, either the inheritance he receives or the inheritance he bestows. But the parallel passage in Colossians 1.12 strongly suggests the other interpretation here, namely, that God's inheritance refers to what he will give us, for we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, which is the language that is directly taken out of Colossians 1.12, by the way. In this case, if God's call points back to the beginning of our Christian life, God's inheritance points on to its end, to that final inheritance of which the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, and which Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I think that makes more sense. We're talking about the beginning of, the Christian life in the call, and we're talking about the reception of the inheritance at the end. Which makes the third one also make sense, because thirdly, that we may know the immeasurable or infinite greatness of God's power toward believers. By His power, it is God who calls us when we initially believe and are saved. By His power, it is God that sustains us in Christ throughout our lives here on earth. And by his power, it is God that finally brings us to that point when we receive the inheritance that is currently kept in heaven for us. From beginning to end, it is God's sovereign power alone that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, granting us a faith in Christ 
which is, uh, which is his chosen means for joining us to Christ and thereby enabling us to become co-heirs with Christ. In fact, the apostle says, we believe in Christ according to the working of his, that is the Father's, great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that raises us, dead sinners, from spiritual death unto spiritual life. It is the power that makes us willing and able to believe, as it is stated in the confession. I don't want to underemphasize this point. I, I want you to understand this is more than merely meta metaphorical. God's salvation of sinners is nothing less than the resurrection of the dead. You want to see a modern day miracle? See somebody be regenerated. That's a miracle. Whereas the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot, because unregenerate men are dead in trespasses and sin, and by nature children of wrath, Christ says this, Unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Holy Spirit is spirit. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you birth yourself by the Spirit? No, the Spirit's the one doing the birthing. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same one that even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in Christ. And not only that, this same power is the one that exalted Christ to the right hand of God the Father, the seat of authority in the heavenly places. Paul will go on to say that not only has he exalted Christ in this way, but he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places as well. Think of that. saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him and if we endure we will also reign with him that's the kind of power that's at work in us but now Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the father far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. We did an entire lesson on this idea that Christ is king last Wednesday night. And for those who were there the Wednesday night before that. Uh, so I'm just going to say for a more in-depth analysis of this concept of Christ as king, I'm going to simply refer you to the recording of that lesson on sermon audio. Um, maybe we'll save some time. <laughs> However, 
I do want to review a portion of that lesson here because it's relevant. Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff states that, quote, as the second person in the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son, Christ, naturally shares the dominion of God over all his creatures. His throne is established in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. This kingship differs from the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Or think of it in these terms. The kingship that is conferred on him at his resurrection. Okay, In, in the Great Commission, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means he didn't have it at a time. Okay, So think of when we say the mediatorial kingship. Think of it in those terms. Which is, conferred, uh, which is a conferred economical kingship exercised by Christ, not merely in his divine nature, but as the Anthropos, the God-man. The latter is not a kingship that was Christ by original right, but one with which he is invested. He does not, or it does not pertain to a new realm, one that was not already under his control as son of God, for such a realm can nowhere be found. It is rather to speak in the words of Reverend John Dick, his original kingship, invested with a new form, wearing a new aspect, administered for a new end. In general, we may define the mediatorial kingship of Christ as his official power to rule all things in heaven and on earth for the glory of God and for the execution of God's purpose of salvation. We must distinguish, however, between a regnum gratia, or kingdom of grace, and a regnum potitia, I pronounced it, Otherwise known as kingdom of power. The kingdom of power is what is being referenced in our present text when it says Christ is presently seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Burkhoff further explains that the kingdom of power refers to the dominion of the God-man, Jesus Christ, over the universe, his providential and judicial administration of all things in the interest of the church. In other words, this is the power by which Christ works all things for the good of his people and the glory of God. He's working all things, but it's for our good and it's unto his glory. It is the same authority in which he bases the Great Commission, which I've already mentioned, but it's the same authority he bases the Great Commission in which he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, on the basis of that authority... And make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> As I said last Wednesday night, Christ's kingly sovereignty extends over the whole cosmos. He directs history in such a way as to ultimately result in the good of his people unto the glory of God. This authority extends to all spheres of human sovereignty, individual, family, church, and state. And also extends to his authority over all the laws of nature and time and space. He says to the storm, peace be still, and it is. In other words, Christ is sovereign over all aspects of the created order. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. However, <clears throat> There is a special sense. Christ is Lord over all. There is a special sense 
in which Christ is head over all things to the church. This references what Burkhoff calls the kingdom of grace. This kingdom is identical to the kingdom of God, about which Jesus says we must be born from above or born again to see and enter it. In other words, the kingdom of grace is constituted of the universal, invisible church we confess each week, which is composed of God's elect saints and only God's elect saints who are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm sure we could list several ways in which Christ's headship over the church is unique, but in the interest of time, I will only list Two. Number one, it is the elect saints of whom the church is composed that are being renewed after the image of Christ in order that he might be the firstborn or the preeminent among many brothers. That's unique to the church. The lost are not being renewed after the image of their creator. They're not being conformed to the image of the son. That's unique to us. Second, <clears throat> Scripture consistently describes the church as the body of Christ, of which he himself is the head. No other group of people besides the church is described as Christ's body. And this makes sense if you think about it. It is the head which tells the rest of the body when and how to act. Likewise, Christ tells his church when and how to act. Another analogy I thought of, I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, but it made sense in my mind. If anybody can give me a good argument against it later, I'm, I'm good with it. But the face is on the head, right? And often that's how we identify people is by their face, right? Um, if this is true of me. I've heard other people say this. I'm really good with faces, but not names. Like I identify you by your face. <laughs> so that's another thing. The church is to be known by its head, Christ. That's that our identity is in Christ. <clears throat> so that, again, that is unique to us, the church. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ's metaphysical body, the church, is described as the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I found two primary interpretations of this phrase. I actually found a third, but I'm saying two primary ones. One extremely popular view is that this means the church completes Christ in the same way a literal head is completed by its body. This was the interpretation of John Calvin, who said of the phrase, This is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete. Calvin adds that the phrase, who fills all in all, is added to guard against the supposition that any real defect would exist in Christ if he were separated from us. 
His wish to be filled and in some respects made perfect in us arises from no want or necessity. For all that is good in ourselves or in any of the creatures is the gift of his hand. And his goodness appears the more remarkably in raising us out of nothing that he, in like manner, may dwell and live in us. So that's one very popular interpretation. I just thought that it needed to be mentioned. But I am inclined to agree with John Stott, who interprets the phrase to mean the church is the fullness of Christ, not because it fills him, but because he fills it. The greater context of the passage, which shows the great gracious blessings which are ours in Christ, and the preeminence of Christ over all things, seems to fit better with this interpretation, at least in my opinion. Again, Stott explains, quote, The church is his body. He directs it. The church is his fullness. He fills it. Further, both teach Christ's double rule over universe and church. For on the one hand, God gave Christ to the church as head over all things, verse 22. And on the other, the church is filled by Christ, who also fills all things, verse 23. At any rate, I think we can take away from this passage, rightly take away from this passage, that Christ is king. And he's not just king, he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he is reigning from heaven now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It is this same Christ in whom we place our faith and in whom we receive all these spiritual blessings we have discussed over the past two weeks. So my prayer is that we would all attain what Paul prayed for on behalf of the Ephesian believers. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may better know the hope we have in Christ. The infinite riches we have in our inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. And the great power by which we are saved through Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. Father, again we come to you to thank you for all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We thank you that um, he was made man. He became man. Um, he identifies with us. He is our covenant head. He lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. And he died the death we deserve to die. And he rose victorious over everything. So that our hope and our confidence can be completely in him. And that we have no fear that he will fail to bring us to the final uh, glorification that is ours in him. And... He will bring to us the fullness of our inheritance as co-heirs with him. So, Lord, we want to just thank you for Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.